We uh, in the middle of a series, and, and part of what we're doing in this series is dealing with the lies that we believe. At the, at the heart of every issue that we believe, there is a lie. Uh, it doesn't matter how big or how small the, the reality is. Every struggle, every, every problem, every sin that we deal with, it starts with a lie. And in this series, we've been striving to know the truths of God, not just have more facts about God, not just have a list of facts that we can say, oh, well, I know this, I know this, I know this about God, but truths that we know intimately, that we've experienced, that we've seen him working out. Of course, that starts with us being introduced to them, being just having a knowledge of them, and then step by step walking through them, trusting in them, and seeing him come through, because that's what God does. He always comes through. He will never let you down. And, and, and so as we've done this, the, the things that we've learned to date are that because God is great, we don't have to be in control. God is sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. There are no circumstances, though, that we can truly control. But because of who God is in His greatness, there are no circumstances in which we exist that we are out of His control. We can, we can trust and rest in God's sovereign, great, powerful rule. In Christ, that He is the the evidence of that in in our lives, because God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. God exists above all things. There's nothing more glorious than God. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is the central reason or the the, the uncaused cause of everything. And in Christ, His glory can and should be the very central focus for which we live and, and the motivating factor of our lives. If it isn't, it's because we have begun to fear something or someone else more than we fear him. Or we have begun to, to consider something or someone else more glorious than him, more worthy of the devotion of our lives, more worthy of our worship, more worthy of, of being the reason that we live. And knowing these truths about God, they enable us to defeat the lies. The only way to defeat a lie is to crush it with truth. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's, that's the reason we're taking the time to study these things as we, as we work through this, this series this summer. Today, our truth is that God is good. And so we don't have to look elsewhere. Because God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. And I'm just going to tell you, this morning when I woke up, I woke up early this morning. It was at 5 o'clock. My alarm, I typically set, on Sunday morning, I typically set my alarm for 5 o'clock. And then I hit snooze about three or four times because I want to sleep. But God, man, I woke up and there was this intense pressure, I don't, conviction maybe is a better way, way to say it, to rewrite the message that I had prepared. I'm serious. This is not the first time it's happened if you've been with me. I like to share this because I want you feeling bad for me. <laughs> so afterwards, if it goes wrong, you know, hey, I just prepared this message about an hour ago. So pat me on the back. Feel bad for me. We'll, we'll be all right. Not really, but the reality is I, it, it's, it, it fit this morning because I'm going to tell you that I struggled with the idea that God is good at 5 o'clock this morning when I'm feeling the conviction to rewrite everything I've been working on since last week. Man, it's rough. Now, I shared with you last week my fear of man issues, my desires for your approval, my longing to have you think that I do a good job. But this morning I recognized that part of my struggle is that I want to do a good job because I like the approval that comes from that more than I appreciate God's goodness. See, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking elsewhere. But we do it all over our lives. We do it in, in every circumstance of our lives. As we struggle and, and, and are discontent and unhappy with the things that are happening in our life, 
It's because we think that God's not giving us all of his good. As we, as we fight against the, the, the circumstances of life and, and act as if we deserve better, it's because we think God's holding back some good. But the scripture teaches us that God is good. And the direct application for that to you and to me, that we don't have to look anywhere else to find goodness. It is in God, and He is more than good enough. Now, God's goodness has been challenged for centuries. Epicurus was a, was a Greek philosopher who philosophized, and that's a really a word. When I typed it in, my spell checker actually recognized it. Philosophers philosophize. So he philosophized that God couldn't exist, at least the God of the Bible couldn't exist. And he based his idea on the fact that evil exists. So he's credited with the idea that he, that, that he came up with the problem of evil. He, this was back in the 300s, early three, or late 300s, early 200 BC. He lived, and, and in that time, he came up with this idea that because evil exists, God can't. And since then, people have been building on his ideas and using his perspectives and, and challenging God's existence, or at least the God of the Bible, based on their perspectives of how evil exists in the world. And so I brought to you a, a list of eight perspectives that is a common way for people to deal with this in logic today. One example of this, of, of this thing that started with Epicurus. Number one, God exists. That's the first assumption. Okay, we say God exists. We say God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He can, he can do anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's never learning. He never, he never has to have something. Figure, he never has to figure anything out. He just knows it already. And we say that God is perfectly good, that he's a benevolent God. Those are all perspectives that the Bible teaches, and so that's why we proclaim them. We don't come up. It's not like we made this up. This is what the Bible teaches. And then third, a perfectly good being would want to prevent all evils. An omniscient being knows every way in which evil can come into existence. An omnipotent being who knows every way in which all evil can come into existence has the power to prevent that evil from coming into existence. You see how it begins to build on itself. Man, it sounds very logical. That makes sense. A being who knows, or I'm sorry, number seven, if there exists an omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good being, then no evil exists. Number eight, evil exists. There's a logical contradiction, right? And here's the problem. There's two flaws, at least two flaws, I think, in this style of argument or this type of argument. In this argument, good and evil are defined based on our experience. Now, how do you define what's good and evil? What's pleasurable to you, right? I mean, if it feels good, it must be good if it feels bad. If you don't like what's happening, it must be bad, right? It, it defines good and evil based on our experience. And second, it's not just that, but second, it assumes that we're in a position to define what an infinitely power, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely present, and infinitely good God would be about doing. Look back at number three and four. As it, be, as it moves from what's proclaimed about God to assuming what this infinite God would do. All of a sudden, we've taken the infinite and reduced it under our power and our control and said that the finite is going to control the infinite. And suddenly, the logic is thrown out the window. It's the inconsistency of fallen thought. Anytime fallen people come up with thoughts on their own, apart from God's omniscience, 
it's inconsistent. It falls apart. It won't stand in the presence of God. And so I would never deny that evil exists. Look, look around. I mean, it's obvious. Pedophiles, murderers, uh, that's evil stuff. Drunk drivers killing people, that's evil stuff. I mean, that, those are things we know we can recognize. It's just, it seems obvious to us, right? Seems pretty black and white. But here's what happens in the mix of all this. If this is the stance we take, and then we begin to define evil or, or what good and bad is based on our experience, what was black and white can quickly turn a lot of different shades of gray. I mean, have you ever suffered something that actually turned out for your good? Have you ever been through a difficult time in your life that actually worked out for your good? Well, wouldn't that make that event that was so difficult to deal with actually a good thing? How did you know it was a good thing then? Because it actually worked out for your good. Have you ever looked at a situation and thought it was good? I had some friends do this not long ago. They thought, as they were trying to perceive and understand what God wanted for them and his good for their life, they thought they needed to move. And they saw some doors opening where they were going, and, and they're, oh, we got to go, we got to go. So they throw everything down, acting, I think, desiring his good. And they have gotten to where they were going, and their lives are falling apart. Now, who's to know what's going to happen in the end? But is that a good thing? How do we know? How do we know? Let's take Jesus as an example. Maybe the, in fact, I, I think it has been said, I think I have said it, that the greatest act of evil ever committed was that he was hung on the cross. We killed God. That sounds pretty evil, right? But out of such an evil act, so much good has been wrought. Why are you here this morning? Why do you worship? Why do you sing songs about running into the arms of Jesus? Why do you care that he lived? Because that act appears evil from one perspective. It may really be the greatest act of benevolence ever acted or ever done. See, in the midst of our lie, what's black and white in many cases all of a sudden turns gray and we don't know anymore. And we're forced to recognize, we're forced to recognize that maybe we aren't the best judge of good and evil. Maybe based on our perspectives, we shouldn't be determining these things by ourselves. But here Jesus makes an authoritative statement. Jesus makes an authoritative statement that brings clarity back to it all. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. I'm sorry, not Mark chapter 8. Uh, Mark chapter 10. See, I told you. I'm, I'm, this, is, this was a passage I was going to use as an illustration. Suddenly this morning it became the focal passage. But Jesus makes an authoritative statement in the midst of this passage that, that I think brings clarity to what it is to know good and evil. Mark chapter 10, start reading in verse 17. <clears throat> and 
And he was setting, on his, setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I want to set something up first. Jesus is on his way out of town. He's, he's headed out to, to go on this journey that he's got figured out where he's going. He knows what's going on. He's, he's on his way out. And a man runs up. There's a sense that this guy wants to get this question answered, that he has a desperation for this. There's a sense of urgency. He didn't say, well, you know, I might see Jesus again someday. I'll ask him then. He made sure that he got to see Jesus and ask him this question before Jesus got out of town. Because it's, it's that important to him. And he says, good teacher, this is what's so important, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question, right? I mean, it's a question that we all want to be able to answer. Don't we all long for eternal life? I mean, aren't you here at some level wondering, at least, even if you're not trusting in Jesus today, aren't you wondering what it is to have eternal life? I mean, it's a basic question. The scripture teaches us that, that God has put eternity on our hearts. There's a sense and an understanding that there is something that comes after this. We want what's good. We want that life. That's normal. Seems like a great question. And Jesus said to him, and here's, here's, this is common to Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't always just answer directly what you ask. Jesus kind of takes this moment as a teaching moment. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Wait, that's not, wait, what? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now he's getting back to the, to the heart of the question. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This guy hears this. I think his ears perked up. You know, he got excited. He said to, the, to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Here this guy is. Here this guy is asking what it is to gain eternal life. And he says, I've already measured up to all those things. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I love that passage. Because in that moment, in those words, the contradiction that Jesus is about to point out to the guy, he's doing it because he loved him. Sometimes we think that contradiction is all about, oh, they don't like me, they disagree with me. If they would just agree with me, I would... No, Jesus loved him. And so he contradicted him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The, 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 the authoritative statement that I think that we need to focus on and really becomes the focal passage of that message or that, of that teaching of Jesus is, only God is good. You see, what this guy has done is he has come to Jesus and said, I want eternal life. Jesus says, this is, the, this is what that looks like. This is what that life looks like. He says, I'm already good enough. He doesn't even begin to contemplate. He doesn't even begin to understand that he's not good enough. Jesus shows him that he's not. He has to walk away with that. But Jesus in the midst of this says, only God is good. And from that, I mean, we can begin to see some things. We can begin to understand some things twice in one phrase. No one is good, number one, except God alone. Number two, two times Jesus reiterates or, or says in one phrase, only God is good. Do you think he meant it? Or do you think that he said it twice just to, because he felt good about it the first time? He didn't like it the first time. Well, I'll say it again just to, 
See if I like it better. No, he meant it. Only God is good. Positively, God is good. Negatively, we are not. And we're going to deal with that a little more in a few weeks. We're not going to deal with it as much, as much today, but we're going to deal with that, that idea in a couple of weeks. But because God alone is good, there really is no one else that can determine what good is. There, there's no one else that can differentiate between what is truly good and what is truly evil. There's no one else that can offer anything good. You see, if, if, if it was possible for good to come from something that wasn't good, that, that, that's, it's like asking something to come from nothing, life to come from death. It doesn't happen. So God, these, these two ideas, God is the standard of good and God is the source of good. That's what Jesus is telling him. J Jesus wants him to understand God's the standard of what's good. God, God is the one. You, you call me good teacher, but God's the one that determines that. You, you look at your own life and you say, you, you think you're good. But God is the judge of that. And typically, you know, it's our feelings. Wow, that's, that feels really good. I like it. Must be good. That doesn't feel good at all. I don't, this, this kind of stinks. This, my, my life is difficult right now. I, I must be doing something wrong. I'm, it must be bad. But for something to be good, it must first be God or be deemed good by God because God is the standard for good. But for something, let me say it again, for something to be good, it must first be God or be deemed to be good by God. For example, in the creation, the very beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, a, was void and without form. And the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And you know what happened? Light shined. There was no sun, no, no seeming, seemingly no source, but light shines. And God looks at that light, and you know what, what, what his thoughts on that light were? It tells us he saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And that was the first day. Well, that, that, that trend continues all the way through the, the next five days of the creation narrative. As God creates and he puts things together and he brings them to completion, he calls them good. At the end of day three, after, after separating the atmosphere from, from the waters below, after, after bringing land up from the water and after putting vegetation on the land, God looks at the earth that he's brought into existence says it's good. And then he puts the sun in the sky and the moon in, in the night sky and the stars are filling the rest of the sky and he says this is good. And then he begins to fill his creation with animals that fill the sky and the land and the waters. He says it's good. And on day six, he comes to, this, to the end of his creation after, after everything is done and man and woman are, are, are standing there in his presence. And he sees all that he created. And it says this in Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. See, God alone... can call things good. 
God alone can call things good. There is a moment, though, in creation that God says, well, it's not good. See, just as God is in a unique position to determine what is good, he is also the only one qualified to determine or to know what isn't. So Genesis chapter 2 kind of gives us a, a zoomed in. Genesis 1 is, a, is an overarching perspective of the creation. Genesis chapter 2 is like zooming in on day 6. We begin to see exactly what happened. On day six, he, he forms the man out of the dust. He breathes air or the life into, his, into those nostrils, those nostrils of dirt. And the, and the man comes to life and he stands in the presence of God. And God puts him in a garden and he says, I want you to tend it, rule over it, subdue it. Man's given purpose and mission in life. And God says, I, I, I give you all the trees to eat from except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. It was good that God gave him a command to obey. It was good that the man was being having his needs met by God. And then God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You see, God took all the animals that he created and he brought them in front of the man and the man sat there beginning to recognize his great need. A need that could only be met by God. You see, the need wasn't bad. But if there had been any other attempt, if he had tried to meet that need through any other way, he would have missed it. God came and met his need. He created the woman. He, took, he took, put the man to sleep and he took the rib from the man's side and he formed the woman. And as God brings the woman to the man, there's so much celebration. This finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Eleven years yesterday, Amy and I have been married. And I think in this marriage, I'm beginning to gain a glimpse of what Adam felt in that moment. Bone of bone and flesh of my flesh. See, there's a sense that in her, I am finding the completeness and the goodness of God revealed in my life. It's a beautiful story as this is brought together and we're seeing the fruition of his work in our lives. But just as God was able to call the days good, he was able to say in that moment when Adam was all by himself, this is not good. Only God can do that. So when God gave commands to not eat the fruit, it was good. When, when later in the scripture, when God called Abraham to get up and leave his home and to follow him into a place that Abraham had no idea where he was going, that was good. When God gave the Israelites commandments to follow as his people, that was good. Today, when you and I deal with commandments of God and a call to obedience, it is good. Good. God isn't trying to keep you from anything. But He knows what's good and what's evil. You see, that's the first perspective we can gain from that, is that God alone is good, so only God, or God is the standard of good. He is the one that calls what's good and what's not good. And second, God is the source of good. If it's truly good, its origin is in God. Its origin 
is in God. There's no good thing I have to offer you. I hope that today's message speaks to your heart and is a blessing to you. I hope that the community of this church is able to to serve you and you're able to find needs met and you're able to find a family to connect to and you're able to have a place to plug into and that you may serve. I hope that you're able to find those things. But there is nothing we have to offer that's good that doesn't start with God. Nothing. God is the source of all good. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source of good. God is the standard of good because God alone is good. But what do we do? How, 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 how do we respond to that in many cases? We look at the circumstances of our life. We get frustrated because we're not getting what we want. We think if I just had a bigger house, I'd be happy. If I just had more money in the bank, I'd be happy. If I had the family that I expected, if, if, if my kids were doing what I thought they should be doing, I'd be happy if whatever. You see, instead of, instead of looking to God for his goodness, we begin to settle for second best. Instead of waiting on what is good, all too often we settle for good enough. I mean, think about this guy, this rich young ruler that we've read about. What does he want? He wants eternal life, right? I mean, he ran to Jesus, making sure that he talked to Jesus before he got out of town. He ran to him. I need to talk to you. I need to know. How badly did he want eternal life? Not bad enough. Because when confronted with what he loved the most, he held on to his money. You see, and, and, and the reality is, is all too often we're, we're, we're willing to settle for, for second best. Eternal life, that, you know, that's too far away. A life without the money that I have today, that doesn't sound appealing. Giving up all I have to follow Jesus, yeah, he doesn't mean that, did he? I mean, he doesn't expect me to be poor, does he? He he doesn't want me to go without, does he? You see, it's not about what God wants us to go with or without. It's that this guy had something that seemed better to him than God or what God had to offer. See, this guy's money was really his God because really that's where he was looking for his satisfaction, his hope, his identity, his purpose, his meaning. It was all tied up in this money and his wealth. Without it, that doesn't sound so good. But it's in this passage and in how we see this guy react, I think we can build two perspectives or two principles for now standing in a place where we can begin to really understand the goodness of God and what's good from God. So good things lead us to God. 
they lead us there. doesn't mean they always feel good. It doesn't mean they always make us happy in the moment. It doesn't mean that, they, that we never are going to struggle or, str- or, or have trials. Jesus was calling this guy to a life of sacrifice, to giving it up for him, to follow him. That doesn't sound good. doesn't sound pleasurable. But it was for his greatest good. You see that? You see, the whole idea about how we determine good from bad, good from evil, is based on our pleasure, what feels good, what feels right in the moment. And Jesus is saying, no, the best thing for you, the absolute best thing for you. Because this is your idol. Rich, young ruler, this is your idol. Walk away from your money. I can't do it. You see, the idea, the the thing is, is that oftentimes the things that we struggle with and and, and the trials we face are are, are the same good gifts from God that we receive in the moments when we receive His blessings from Him. Philippians 1, 29, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible since I've seen it, I, I mean, I've seen it over and over and over. For it has been granted to you. You hear that? For it has been granted to you. It's a gift. You, you've been given this. You didn't deserve it. It's been given to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So, okay, first gift is that I get to believe in Christ. My faith is a gift. That I get to know Jesus, that I get to follow him, that I get to walk along with him is a gift. And it would be great if it stopped there because the, the rest of the passage is the part we don't really like. But you also get to suffer for his sake. You see, that word granted is not only connected to your faith, but it's also connected to the suffering for his sake. It's a blessing. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a gift from God. And these kind of things always lead us back to God. Good things will always lead us to God. For the believer in Jesus Christ, suffering is a discipline. It, it, suffering is discipline from God. It, it's good from Him. It's, it's His work on our behalf in our favor. For the believer, death is gain. That's totally in, it's totally, uh, it's in contradiction to all we think and perceive. Suffering is good and death is gain. See, it doesn't have to feel good to be good. To be good, it must lead us back to God. And so if there's something in your life, I just, I I don't know, maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're, maybe today you're here and you're single. I used to know some single people that, ah, oh man, if I could just get married. Let me tell you. <laughs> I know I would give that just a significant pause. <laughs> Marriage is wonderful because it sanctifies us. I'm a better man. I'm a stronger Christian. I'm a, I'm a deeper believer because God has used my wife to make me holy. You know what? That makes me happy. Oh, it's not always been easy. You wouldn't know it. She's so sweet and quiet. Come home with me sometime. No, she's amazing. I I feel for her because she has to put up with so much for me. Oh, if I could just get married, then it would be right. God, why are you holding this from me? I thought you were good. 
Some of us think it's because we're out of control that we're not experiencing God's goodness. If I could just get control, if I could just hang on a little tighter, if I could just manage this situation. Some of us think it's the people, we know a number of people, ah, I, I need one more friend on Facebook and then I'll be satisfied. I know that sounds silly, but there's a lot of people that way. And then when they post something on Twitter, on a Facebook, they're on there looking all the time. How are people responding to this? See, we're looking for our satisfaction. We're looking for our pleasure. We're thinking God's good and using us if people are commenting. Yeah, another way this works out, it works out in my life all the time. Here's the reality, man. Sometimes I, I don't even care what people think for real. Just as long as they tell me a lie to my face about how good they, they think I am. I don't care if you mean it. Just as long as you make me feel that way. Sure, it hurts if I find out the truth later, but in the moment, uh, really all I got to do is find somebody else to make me feel good. Yeah, that's the reality of it. We're constantly finding out that, that the new house, the bigger bank account, that the car that we wanted that so desperately, that the, the spouse that we longed for, they're not living it up, living up to our expectations, and suddenly they're not making us happy anymore. We're not, no longer filled with joy. We don't know peace in life. It just seems to be one big problem right after the other. Because we're looking for something for good and something that's not able to offer it. Everything good will eventually lead us back to God. And everything good, well, let's just say it this way. This is the, the point. Good things made God things are bad things. Good things made God things are bad things. This guy's money... I mean, think about this for just a minute. This guy's money by itself isn't that big a deal, right? I mean, honestly, money is really amoral. Money's not having money, having a lot of money. That's not a bad thing. If you're rich, I'm not trying to make you feel bad and think that, oh, now I've got to give it all up and walk away from everything. That's, that's not God's call on every rich person to be poor. But the reality is, is that this guy's money had become his God. It had become more important to him than, than God himself. He took a good thing and made it a God thing. And suddenly money, which is amoral by itself, doesn't have a, a standing good or evil one way or the other, became something evil. It became a false God. I mean, a little less obvious in this story is that this guy desperately longed, desperately longed for eternal life. It's not a bad thing, right? Shouldn't we all long for life in the presence of God our Creator? Yes. Yes, but if we're looking for the reward based on what we've done, we've missed the part about getting to be in the presence of God forever. You see, we begin to desire the reward more than the God of the reward. That's why all of a sudden eternal life was able to be categorized along with money. Because in his list of priorities and the size of his God's, Eternal life fell under money. And the God of eternal life fell even lower than that. Good things made God things or bad things. The people in our lives, good things probably. I mean, God, he said it's not good for man to be alone. He created us for relationship. It's good to have friends. It's good to get married. It's good to, to connect and live in community. That's a good thing. But when those relationships 
become more important to us than God himself, they become evil things. Sex. That's a good thing in the right context. In our culture, we've made sex a God thing. And we use it in ways that defame and grieve God. He told the animals on day five, he said, be fruitful and multiply. He told the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. What do you think he was meaning? That's a good thing. Enjoy it within the right context. Food. I, I struggle with this one because in my mind, you know, food, that's a good thing. God gave us the plants of the earth. He gave us and, and met our needs. He told Peter at, at, after, um, after the Pentecost moment with Peter, Peter has a dream later and he sees that God is opening up the abundance of all. There's no, no limitations anymore for the Jewish person to have to observe. It's a good thing to eat. It's a good thing to get together and have meals and feast together and celebrate the glory of God. But for some of us, food becomes this thing that begins to satisfy us more than anything else. I make a lot of jokes about my size and my weight, but just to be real honest, there's a part of me when the stress happens, when I begin to feel pressure and stress, you know what I turn to? I eat. I don't know why. I know. I, I, trust me, I know. Food doesn't make you feel better. I know. You know. I don't have to be told that. But the reality is something in my mind, some lie in my heart tells me Put some food in your mouth, you'll feel better. I, I don't know. Maybe I was given too many cookies for rewards when I was a kid. I, I don't know, but it's the truth. <laughs> I, blame, I blame my mom for that. Clothes. Are clothes good or bad? It's a good thing, trust me. You don't want me up here. Trust me. Clothes are a good thing. And God, who, who provided the first clothes? Well, man came up with this makeshift way to cover himself, right? When he, hiding in the garden, the man, he's like, oh, God, we got to hide. We gotta, he's coming. I'm ashamed for you to see me naked. So he, he and his wife, Eve, they, 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 they get leaves and they cover up. God provided the first good, lasting, substantial clothing. It's a great thing. And we need it today. It's a good thing that can become a God thing. If I don't have the right styles, if I don't wear the right fashions. We've made it that way in churches forever. I mean, we're, we're, we're of a new trend because you can come here with your shirt untucked. You don't have to dress all up. You're welcome to dress up. I'm happy for you to dress up. But in churches for, for the longest time, we've acted as if you're not dressed a certain way or smell a certain way. If You, you know what? We just soon not have you. Or we're going to talk bad about you while you're not listening. Good things made God things or bad things. Happiness. We live in a hedonistic culture. You know why we like what's easy and pleasant? Because happiness has been made a God thing in our culture. Well, if I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. If it doesn't make me feel good, I don't want any part of it. But that's obviously not the good that God has in mind for his people. Because he says, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to make you holy. 
And as I make you holy, you'll become more happy. You see, the truth is that God is good. And there is nothing that can take his place. There's nothing that can satisfy you the way God does. There is nothing that will ever measure up. There is nothing worth pursuing more than him. There is nothing. In fact, Jesus, speaking about worry, and the way people struggle with the circumstances of life, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God in the things of God. Seek him. And these things will be added unto you. God is good. He will provide. God is good. He will make sure your needs are met. God is good. He longs for your joy. God is good. Seek Him first. Let's pray. My Father, I, I know, I, I know, God, that we struggle with this idea of your goodness. I know that people strive to use what they deem in the world as evil, what they deem in the world as not good. They, they strive to try to undermine you, but God, would you remind us consistently, presently, that only you can really say. That we're dependent upon you to know. Nothing else belongs in your place. God, will you help us in this moment to recognize those things that we are striving to make God things? God, would you help us to recognize that in the moment, that even in the circumstance we're sitting in and, and, the, and, and the, the situations of our life outside of this room, that even those are for our good. God, would you, would you build in us this confidence in your goodness, that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't pursue satisfaction from anywhere else. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.